Chapter Thirteen of the Pirate's Own Book. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joel Peebles. The Pirate's Own Book by Charles Elms. Chapter Thirteen. Authentic History of the Malay Pirates of the Indian Ocean, with a narrative of the expedition against the inhabitants of Kuala Batu commanded by Commodore Downs. A glance at the map of the East India Islands will convince us that this region of the globe must, from its natural configuration and locality, be peculiarly liable to become the seat of piracy. These islands form an immense cluster, lying as if it were in the high road which connects the commercial nations of Europe and Asia with each other, affording a hundred fastnesses from which to waylay the traveler. A large proportion of the population is at the same time confined to the coasts or the estuaries of rivers. They are fishermen and mariners, they are barbarous and poor, therefore rapacious, faithless, and sanguinary. These are circumstances, it must be confessed, which militate strongly to beget a piratical character. It is not surprising, then, that the Malay should have been notorious for their depredations from our first acquaintance with them. Among the tribes of the Indian islands, the most noted for their piracies are, of course, the most idle, and the least industrious, and particularly such as are unaccustomed to follow agriculture or trade as regular pursuits. The agricultural tribes of Java, and many of Sumatra, never commit piracy at all, and the most civilized inhabitants of Celebes are very little addicted to this vice. Among the most confirmed pirates are the true Malays, inhabiting the small islands about the eastern extremity of the Straits of Malacca, and those lying between Sumatra and Borneo, down to Bilitin and Cavamatir. Still more noted than these are the inhabitants of certain islands situated between Borneo and the Philippines, of whom the most desperate and enterprising are the Sulus and Illanoons the former inhabiting a well-known group of islands of the same name, and the latter being one of the most numerous nations of the great island of Magandondo. The depredations of the proper Malays extend from Junkceylon to Java, through its whole coast as far as Grip to Papir and Kriti, in Borneo and the western coast of Celebes. In another direction they infest the coasting trade of the Cochin Chinese and Siamese nations in the Gulf of Siam, finding sail for their booty and shelter for themselves in the ports of Tringham, Kalantan, and Sahang. The most noted piratical stations of these people are the small islands about Lingin and Rio, particularly Galang, Tamiang, and Mafar. The chief of this last has seventy or eighty proas fit to undertake piratical expeditions. The Sulu pirates chiefly confine their depredations to the Philippine Islands, which they have continued to infest with little interruption for nearly three centuries. In open defiance of the Spanish authorities and the numerous establishments maintained to check them. The piracies of the Illanoons, on the contrary, are widely extended, being carried on all the way from their native country to the Spice Islands on one side and to the Straits of Malacca on the other. In these last, indeed, they have formed for the last few years two permanent establishments. One of these, situated on Sumatra, near Indragiri, is called Ridi. The other, a small island on the coast of Linga, is named Salangut. 
Besides those who are avowed pirates, it ought to be particularly noticed that a great number of the Malayan princes must be considered as accessories to their crimes, for they afford them protection, contribute to their outfit, and often share in their booty, so that a piratical proa is too commonly more welcome in their harbors than a fair trader. The Malay piratical proas are from six to eight tons burden, and run from six to eight fathoms in length. They carry from one to two small guns with commonly four swivels or rantakas to each side, and a crew of from twenty to thirty men. When they engage, they put up a strong bulwark of thick plank. The Illinun proas are much larger and more formidable, and commonly carry from four to six guns and a proportionable number of swivels, and have not unfrequently a double bulwark covered with buffalo hides. Their crews consist of from forty to eighty men. Both, of course, are provided with spears, krises, and as many firearms as they can procure. Their modes of attack are cautious and cowardly, for plunder and not fame is their object. They lie concealed under the land until they find a fit object and opportunity. The time chosen is when a vessel runs aground or is becalmed in the interval between the land and sea breezes. A vessel under way is seldom or never attacked. Several of the marauders attack together and station themselves under the bows and quarters of a ship when she has no longer steerage way and is incapable of pointing her guns. The action continues often for several hours, doing very little mischief, but when the crews are exhausted with a defense or have expended their ammunition, the pirates take this opportunity of boarding in a mass. This may suggest the best means of defense. A ship, when attacked during a calm, ought, perhaps, rather to stand on the defensive and wait, if possible, the setting in of the sea breeze than attempt any active operations which would only fatigue the crew and disable them from making the necessary defense when boarding is attempted. Boarding netting, pikes, and pistols appear to afford effectual security, and, indeed, we conceive that a vessel thus defended by resolute crews of Europeans or Americans stand but little danger from any open attack of pirates whatsoever, for their guns are so ill-served that neither the hull or the rigging of a vessel can receive much damage from them, however much protracted the contest. The pirates are upon the whole extremely impartial in the selection of their prey, making little choice between natives and strangers, giving always, however, a natural preference to the most timid and the most easily overcome. When an expedition is undertaken by the Malay pirates, they range themselves under the banner of some piratical chief noted for his courage and conduct. The native prince of the place where it is prepared supplies the adventurers with arms, ammunition, and opium, and claims as his share of the plunder the female captives, the cannon, and one-third of all the rest of the booty. In November 1827, a principal chief of pirates named Sindana made a descent upon Mamudgu with forty-five proas, burnt three-fourths of the Kampong, driving the Raja with his family among the mountains. Some scores of men were killed and three hundred made prisoners, besides women and children to half that amount. In December following, when I was there, the people were slowly returning from the hills, but had not yet attempted to rebuild the Kampong, which lay in ashes. During my stay here, ten weeks, the place was visited by two other piratical chiefs, one of which was from Kaili, the other from Mandar Point under Bem Bowen, who appeared to have charge of the whole. 
Between them, they had 134 proas of all sizes. Among the most desperate and successful pirates of the present day, Raga is most distinguished. He is dreaded by people of all denominations and universally known as the Prince of Pirates. For more than seventeen years this man has carried on a system of piracy to an extent never before known. His expeditions and enterprises would fill a large volume. They have invariably been marked with singular cunning and intelligence, barbarity and reckless inattention to the shedding of human blood. He has emissaries everywhere and has intelligence of the best description. It was about the year 1813 Raga commenced operations on a large scale. In that year he cut off three English vessels, killing the captains with his own hands. So extensive were his depredations about that time that a proclamation was issued from Batavia declaring the east coast of Borneo to be under strict blockade. Two British sloops of war scoured the coast, one of which, the Elk, Captain Reynolds, was attacked during the night by Raga's own proa, who unfortunately was not on board at the time. This proa, which Raga personally commanded, and the loss of which he frequently laments, carried eight guns and was full of his best men. A European vessel was faintly descried about three o'clock one foggy morning. The rain fell in torrents, the time and weather were favorable circumstances for a surprise, and the commander, determined to distinguish himself in the absence of the Raja Raga, gave directions to close, fire the guns, and board. He was the more confident of success as the European vessel was observed to keep away out of the proper course on approaching her. On getting within about a hundred fathoms of the elk, they fired their broadside, gave a loud shout, and with their long oars pulled towards their prey. The sound of a drum beating to quarters no sooner struck the ear of the astonished melees than they endeavored to get away. It was too late. The ports were opened and a broadside, accompanied by three British cheers, gave sure indications of their fate. The captain hailed the elk and would fain persuade him it was a mistake. It was indeed a mistake, and one not to be rectified by the Malayan explanation. The pro was sunk by repeated broadsides, and the commanding officer refused to pick up any of the people, who with the exception of five were drowned. These, after floating four days on some spars, were picked up by a forgotten proa, and told the story to Raga, who swore a new destruction to every European he should henceforth take. This desperado has for upwards of seventeen years been the terror of the Straits of Makassar, during which period he has committed the most extensive and dreadful excesses, sparing no one. Few respectable families along the coast of Borneo and Celebes but have to complain of the loss of a proa or of some number of their race. He is not more universally dreaded than detested. It is well known that he has cut off and murdered the crews of more than forty European vessels, which have either been wrecked on the coasts or entrusted themselves in native ports. It is his boast that twenty of the commanders have fallen by his hands. The western coast of Celebes, for about 250 miles, is absolutely lined with proas, belonging principally to three considerable rajas, who act in conjunction with raga and other pirates. Their proas may be seen in clusters of from 50, 80, and 100. At Sediano I counted 147 laying on the sand at high water mark in parallel rows, and kept in a horizontal position by poles completely ready for the sea. Immediately behind them are the campongs, in which are the crews. 
Here, likewise, are kept the sails, gunpowder, etc., necessary for their equipment. On the very summits of the mountains, which in many parts rise abruptly from the sea, may be distinguished innumerable huts. Here reside people who are constantly on the lookout. A vessel within ten miles of the shore will not probably perceive a single proa, yet in less than two hours, if the tide be high, she may be surrounded by some hundreds. Should the water be low, they will push off during the night. Signals are made from mountain to mountain along the coast with the utmost rapidity, during the daytime by flags attached to long bamboos, at night by fires. Each chief sends forth his proas, the crews of which, in hazardous cases, are infuriated with opium, when they will most assuredly take the vessel, if she be not better provided than most merchantmen. Mr. Dalton, who went to the Pergotten River in 1830, says, Whilst I remained here there were seventy-one proas of considerable sizes, thirty-nine of which were professed pirates. They were anchored off the point of a small promontory on which the Raja has an establishment and bazaar. The largest of these proas belonged to Raga, who received by the fleet of proas in which I came his regular supplies of arms and ammunition from Singapore. Here nestle the principal pirates, and Raga holds his headquarters. His grand depot was a few miles farther up. Raja Agi Boda himself generally resides some distance up a small river which runs eastward of the point. Near his habitation stands the principal bazaar, which would be a great curiosity for a European to visit if he could only manage to return, which very few have. The Raga gave me a pressing invitation to spend a couple of days at his country house, but all the Bugis's Nakodas strongly dissuaded me from such an attempt. I soon discovered the cause of their apprehension. They were jealous of Agibota, well knowing he would plunder me, and considered every article taken by him was so much lost to the Sultan of Koti, who naturally would expect the people to reserve me for his own particular plucking. When the fact was known of a European having arrived in the Pergotten River, this amiable prince and friend of Europeans, impatient to seize his prey, came immediately to the point from his country house, and sending for the Nakada of the Proa, ordered him to land me and all my goods instantly. An invitation now came for me to go on shore and amuse myself with shooting, and look at some rare birds of beautiful plumage which the Raja would give me if I would accept of them. But knowing what were his intentions, and being well aware that I should be supported by all the Bugis's pros from Koti, I feigned sickness and requested that the birds might be sent on board. Upon this, Agibota, who could no longer restrain himself, sent off two boats of armed men who robbed me of many articles and would certainly have forced me on shore or murdered me in the proa had not a signal been made to the Bugis's Nakadas, who immediately came with their people and with spears and krises drove the Raja's people overboard. The Nakadas, nine in number, now went on shore when a scene of contention took place showing clearly the character of this chief. The Bugis from Koti explained that with regard to me it was necessary to be particularly circumspect, as I was not only well known in Singapore, but the authorities in that settlement knew that I was on board the Sultan's proa, and they themselves were responsible for my safety. To this circumstance alone I owe my life on several occasions, as in the event of anything happening to me, every Nakada was apprehensive of his proa being seized on his return to Singapore. I was therefore more peculiarly cared for by this class of men, and they are powerful. The Raja answered the Nakadas by saying, 
I might be disposed of as many others had been, and no further notice taken of the circumstance. He himself would write to Singapore that I had been taken by an alligator, or bitten by a snake, whilst out shooting. And, as for what property I might have in the proa, he would divide it with the Sultan of Koti. The Bugis, however, refused to listen to any terms, knowing the Sultan of Koti would call him to an account for the property, and the authorities of Singapore for my life. Our proa, with others, therefore dropped about four miles down the river, where we took in fresh water. Here we remained six days, every argument being in vain to entice me on shore. At length the Bugis's Nakadas came to the determination to sail without passes, which brought the Rajah to terms. The proas returned to the point, and I was given to understand I might go on shore in safety. I did so, and was introduced to the Rajah, whom I found under a shed with about one hundred and fifty of his people. They were busy gambling, and had the appearance of what they really are, a ferocious set of banditti. Agibota is a good-looking man about forty years of age, of no education whatever. He divides his time between gaming, opium, and cock-fighting. That is in the interval of his more serious and profitable employment, piracy and rapine. He asked me to produce what money I had about me. On seeing only ten rupees, he remarked that it was not worth while to win so small a sum, but that if I would fight cocks with him, he would lend me as much money as I wanted, and added it was beneath his dignity to fight under fifty reals a battle. On my saying it was contrary to an Englishman's religion to bet wagers, he dismissed me. Immediately after the two rajas produced their cocks and commenced fighting for one rupee aside, I was now obliged to give the old Baudere five rupees to take some care of me, as whilst walking about the people not only thrust their hands into my pockets, but pulled the buttons from my clothes. Whilst sauntering behind the Raja's campong, I caught sight of a European woman, who on perceiving herself observed instantly ran into one of the houses, no doubt dreading the consequences of being recognized. There are now in the house of Agibota two European women, up the country there are others, besides several men. The Bugis, inimical to the Raja, made no secret of the fact. I had heard of it on board the proa, and some person in the bazaar confirmed the statement. On my arrival, strict orders had been given to the inhabitants to put all European articles out of sight. One of my servants going into the bazaar brought me such accounts as induced me to visit it. In one house were the following articles. Four Bibles, one in English, one in Dutch, and two in the Portuguese languages, many articles of wearing apparel, such as jackets and trousers, with the buttons altered to suit the natives, pieces of shirts tagged to other parts of dress, several broken instruments, such as quadrants, spy-glasses, two, binnacles with pieces of ship's sails, bolts, and hoops, a considerable variety of gunners' and carpenters' tools, stores, etc., in another shop were two pelisses of faded lilac color. These were of modern cut and fashionably made. On inquiring how they became possessed of these articles, I was told they were some wrecks of European vessels on which no people were found, whilst others made no scruple of averring that they were formerly the property of people who had died in the country. All the goods in the bazaar belonged to the Rajah and were sold on his account. Large quantities were said to be in his house up the river, but on all hands it was admitted Raga and his followers had by far the largest part of what was taken. A mandor, or head of one of the kampongs, showed me some women's stockings, several of which were marked with the letters S.W. 
also two chemises, one with the letters S.W., two flannel petticoats, a miniature portrait frame, the picture was in the Rajah's house, with many articles of dress of both sexes. In consequence of the strict orders given on the subject, I could see no more. Indeed, there were both difficulty and danger attending these inquiries. I particularly wanted to obtain the miniature picture and offered the Mandor fifty rupees if he could procure it. He laughed at me, and pointing significantly to his Chris, drew one hand across my throat and then across his own, giving me to understand such would be the result to us both on such an application to the Rajah. It is the universal custom of the pirates on this coast to sell the people for slaves immediately on their arrival, the Rajah taking for himself a few of the most useful and receiving a percentage upon the purchase money of the remainder, with a moiety of the vessel and every article on board. European vessels are taken up the river where they are immediately broken up. The situation of European prisoners is indeed dreadful in a climate like this, where even the labor of natives is intolerable. They are compelled to bear all the drudgery and allowed a bare sufficiency of rice and salt to eat. It is utterly impossible for Europeans who have seen these pirates at such places as Singapore and Batavia to form any conception of their true character. There they are under immediate control, and every part of their behavior is a tissue of falsehood and deception. They constantly carry about with them a smooth tongue, cringing demeanor, a complying disposition which always asserts and never contradicts, a countenance which appears to anticipate the very wish of the Europeans, and which so generally imposes upon his understanding that he at once concludes them to be the best and gentlest of human beings. But let the European meet them in any of their own campongs, and a very different character they will appear. The character and treacherous proceeding narrated above, and the manner of cutting off vessels and butchering their crews, apply equally to all the pirates of the East India Islands, by which many hundred European and American vessels have been surprised and their crews butchered. On the 7th of February, 1831, the ship Friendship, Captain Endicott of Salem, Massachusetts, was captured by the Malays while lying at Kuala Batu on the coast of Sumatra. In the forenoon of the fatal day, Captain Endicott, Mr. Barry, second mate, and four of the crew, it seems, went on shore as usual for the purpose of weighing pepper, expecting to obtain that day two boatloads which had been promised them by the Malays. After the first boat was loaded, they observed that she delayed some time in passing down the river, and her crew, being composed of Malays, was supposed by the officers to be stealing pepper from her and secreting it in the bushes. In consequence of this conjecture, two men were sent off to watch them, who on approaching the boat saw five or six Malays leap from the jungle and hurry on board of her. The former, however, supposed them to be the boat's crew, as they had seen an equal number quit her previous to their own approach. In this they were mistaken, as will subsequently appear. At this time a brig hove in sight and was seen standing towards Susu, another pepper port, distant about five miles. Captain Endicott, on going to the beach to ascertain whether the brig had hoisted any colors, discovered that the boat with pepper had approached within a few yards of the friendship manned with an unusual number of natives. 
It appears that when the pepper boats came alongside of the friendship, as but few of the hands could work at a time, numbers of the Malays came on board, and on being questioned by Mr. Knight, the first officer who was in the gangway taking an account of the pepper, as to their business, their reply was that they had come to see the vessel. Mr. Knight ordered them into their boat again, and some of them obeyed, but only to return immediately to assist in the work of death, which was now commenced by attacking Mr. Knight and the rest of the crew on board. The crew of the vessel being so scattered, it was impossible to concentrate their force so as to make a successful resistance. Some fell on the forecastle, one in the gangway, and Mr. Knight fell upon the quarter-deck severely wounded by a stab in the back while in the act of snatching from the bulwarks a boarding pike with which to defend himself. The two men who were taking the pepper on a stage, having vainly attempted to get on board to the assistance of their comrades, were compelled to leap into the sea. One of them, Charles Converse of Salem, being severely wounded, succeeded in swimming to the bobstays, to which he clung until taken on board by the natives, and from some cause he was not afterwards molested. His companion, John Davis, being unable to swim, drifted with the tide near the boat-tackle or davit-falls, the blocks being overhauled down near the water. One of these he laid hold of, which the Malays, perceiving, dropped their boat astern and dispatched him. The cook sprang into a canoe alongside, and in attempting to push off she was capsized, and being unable to swim, he got on the bottom and paddled ashore with his hands where he was made prisoner. Gregory, an Italian, sought shelter in the foretop gallant cross-trees, where he was fired at several times by the melees with the muskets of the friendship, which were always kept loaded and ready for use while on the coast. Three of the crew leaped into the sea and swam to a point of land near a mile distant, to the northward of the town, and unperceived by the Malays on shore, pursued their course to the northward towards Cape Felix, intending to go to the port of Annalabu, about forty-five miles distant. Having walked all night, they found themselves on the following morning near the promontory and still twenty-five miles distant from Annalabu. When Mr. Endicott, Mr. Barry, and the four seamen arrived at the beach, they saw the crew jumping into the sea. The truth now, with all its horrors, flashed upon his mind, that the vessel was attacked, and in an instant they jumped on board the boat and pushed off. At the same time a friendly rajah, named Poe Adam, sprang into the boat. He was the proprietor of a port and considerable property at a place called Pulokio, but three miles distant from the mouth of the river Kuala Batu. More business had been done by the Rajah during the eight years past than by any other on the Pepper Coast. He had uniformly professed himself friendly to the Americans, and he has generally received the character of their being honest. Speaking a little English as he sprang into the boat, he exclaimed, Captain, you got trouble. Malay kill you. He kill Poe Adam too. Crowds of Malays assembled on both sides of the river, brandishing their weapons in a menacing manner, while a ferry-boat, manned with eight or ten of the natives, armed with spears and krises, pushed off to prevent the officers regaining their ship. The latter exhibited no fear and flourished the cutlass of Poe Adam in a menacing manner from the bows of the boat. It so intimidated the Malays that they fled to the shore, leaving a free passage to the ship, but as they got near her they found that the Malays had got entire possession of her, some of them were promenading the deck, 
others were making signals of success to the people on shore, while with the exception of one man aloft, not an individual of the crew could be seen. Three Malay boats with about fifty men now issued from the river in the direction of the ship, while the captain and his men, concluding that their only hope of recovering their vessel was to obtain assistance from some other ships, directed their course towards Muchi, where they knew that several American vessels were lying at anchor. Three American captains, upon hearing the misfortunes of their countrymen, weighed anchor immediately for Kuala Batu, determined, if possible, to recover the ship. By four o'clock on the same day they gained an anchorage off that place. The Malays, in the meantime, had removed on shore every movable article belonging to the ship, including specie, beside several cases of opium, amounting in all to upwards of thirty thousand dollars. This was done on the night of the ninth, and on the morning of the tenth they contrived to heave in the chain cable and get the anchor up to the bows, and the ship was drifting finely towards the beach when the cable, not being stopped abaft the bits, began suddenly to run out with great velocity. But a bite having by accident been thrown forward of the windlass, a riding turn was the consequence, and the anchor in its descent was suddenly checked about fifteen fathoms from the house. A squall soon after coming on, the vessel drifted obliquely towards the shore, and grounded upon a coral reef near half a mile to the southward of the town. The next day, having obtained a convenient anchorage, a message was sent by a friendly Malay who came on board at Susu, demanding the restoration of the ship. The Raja replied that he would not give her up, but that they were welcome to take her if they could. A fire was now opened upon the friendship by the vessels. Her decks were crowded with Malays who promptly returned the fire, as did also the forts on shore. This mode of warfare appeared undecisive, and it was determined to decide the contest by a close action. A number of boats being manned and armed with about thirty officers and men, a movement was made to carry the ship by boarding. The Malays did not wait the approach of this determined attack, but all deserted the vessel to her lawful owners when she was taken possession of and warped out into deep water. The appearance of the ship at the time she was boarded beggars all description. Every part of her bore ample testimony to the scene of violence and destruction with which she had been visited. The objects of the voyage were abandoned, and the friendship returned to the United States. The public were unanimous in calling for a redress of the unparalleled outrage on the lives and property of citizens of the United States. The government immediately adopted measures to punish so outrageous an act of piracy by dispatching the frigate Potomac, Commodore Downs' commander. The Potomac sailed from New York the 24th of August, 1831. After touching at Rio Janeiro and the Cape of Good Hope, she anchored off Kuala Batu in February 1832, disguised as a Danish ship, and came to in merchantman style, a few men being sent aloft, dressed in red and blue flannel shirts, and one sail being clued up and furled at a time. A reconnoitering party were sent on shore disguised as pepper dealers, but they returned without being able to ascertain the situations of the forts. The ship now presented a busy scene. It was determined to commence an attack upon the town the next morning, and every necessary preparation was accordingly made. Muskets were cleaned, cartridge boxes buckled on, cutlasses examined and put in order, etc. At twelve o'clock at night all hands were called. Those assigned to take part in the expedition were mustered, 
when Lieutenant Shubrick, the commander of the detachment, gave them special orders. When they entered the boats and proceeded to the shore, where they effected a landing near the dawn of day, amid a heavy surf, about a mile and a half to the north of the town, undiscovered by the enemy, and without any serious accident having befallen them, though several of the party were thoroughly drenched by the beating of the surf, and some of their ammunition was injured. The troops then formed and took up their line of march against the enemy, over a beach of deep and heavy sand. They had not proceeded far before they were discovered by a native at a distance, who ran at full speed to give the alarm. A rapid march soon brought them up with the first fort, when a division of men under the command of Lieutenant Hoff was detached from the main body and ordered to surround it. The first fort was found difficult of access, in consequence of a deep hedge of thorn-bushes and brambles with which it was environed. The assault was commenced by the pioneers with their crows and axes, breaking down the gates and forcing a passage. This was attended with some difficulty and gave the enemy time for preparation. They raised their war-whoop and resisted most manfully, fighting with spears, sabers, and muskets. They had also a few brass pieces in the fort, but they managed them with so little skill as to produce no effect, for the balls uniformly whizzed over the heads of our men. The resistance of the melees was in vain, the fort was stormed, and soon carried, not, however, till almost every individual in it was slain. Poe Mahomet, a chief of much distinction, and who was one of the principal persons concerned in the outrage on the friendship, was here slain. The mother of Chedula, another rajah, was also slain here. Another woman fell at this port, but her rank was not ascertained. She fought with the spirit of a desperado. A seaman had just scaled one of the ramparts when he was severely wounded by a blow received from a weapon in her hands, but her life paid the forfeit of her daring, for she was immediately transfixed by a bayonet in the hands of the person whom she had so severely injured. His head was wounded by a javelin, his thumb nearly cut off by a saber, and a ball was shot through his hat. Lieutenants Edson and Ferret proceeded to the rear of the town and made a bold attack upon that fort which, after a spirited resistance on the part of the Malays, surrendered. Both officers and marines here narrowly escaped with their lives. One of the natives in the fort had trained his piece in such a manner as to rake their whole body when he was shot down by a marine while in the very act of applying a match to it. The cannon was afterwards found to have been filled with bullets. This fort, like the former, was environed with thick jungle and great difficulty had been experienced in entering it. The engagement had now become general, and the alarm universal. Men, women, and children were seen flying in every direction, carrying the few articles they were able to seize in the moments of peril, and some of the men were cut down in the flight. Several of the enemy's proas, filled with people, were severely raked by a brisk fire from the six-pounder as they were sailing up the river to the south of the town, and numbers of the natives were killed. The third and most formidable fort was now attacked, and it proved the most formidable, and the cooperation of the several divisions was required for its reduction, but so spirited was the fire poured into it that it was soon obliged to yield, and the next moment the American colors were seen triumphantly waving over its battlements. The greater part of the town was reduced to ashes. The bazaar, the principal place of merchandise, and most of the private dwellings were consumed by fire. The triumph had now been completed over the Malays, 
Ample satisfaction had been taken for their outrages committed upon our own countrymen, and the bugle sounded the return of the ship's forces, and the embarkation was soon after effected. The action had continued about two hours and a half, and was gallantly sustained both by officers and men from its commencement to its close. The loss on the part of the Meles was near a hundred killed, while of the Americans only two lost their lives. Among the spoils were a Chinese gong, a Koran taken at Mohammed's fort, and several pieces of rich gold cloth. Many of the men came off richly laden with spoils which they had taken from the enemy, such as Raja's scarfs, gold and silver tunam boxes, chains, earrings and finger rings, anklets and bracelets, and a variety of shawls, Chris's richly hilted and with gold scabbards, and a variety of other ornaments. Money to a considerable amount was brought off. That nothing should be left undone to have an indelible impression on the minds of these people of the power of the United States to inflict punishment for aggressions committed on her commerce in seas however distant, the ship was got under way the following morning, and brought to with a spring on her cable within less than a mile of the shore, when the larboard side was brought to bear nearly upon the site of the town. The object of the Commodore in this movement was not to open an indiscriminate or destructive fire upon the town and inhabitants of Kuala Batu, but to show them the irresistible power of thirty-two pound shot, and to reduce the fort of Tuca de Lama, which could not be reached on account of the jungle and stream of water on the morning before, and from which a fire had been opened and continued during the embarkation of the troops on their return to the ship. The fort was very soon deserted, while the shot was cutting it to pieces and tearing up whole cocoa trees by the roots. In the afternoon a boat came off from the shore bearing a flag of truce to the Commodore, beseeching him in all the practiced forms of submission of the East that he would grant them peace and cease to fire his big guns. Hostilities now ceased, and the Commodore informed them that the objects of his government in sending him to their shores had now been consummated in the punishment of the guilty, who had committed their piracies on the friendship. Thus ended the intercourse with Kuala Batu. The Potomac proceeded from this place to China, and from thence to the Pacific Ocean. After looking to the interests of the American commerce in those parts, she arrived at Boston in 1834, after a three years' absence. End of chapter 13 of The Pirate's Own Book Recording by Joelle Peebles